Hello and welcome to Explorify Canada podcast. Join us as we sit with other Canadians at the roundtable. To discuss and sometimes argue about financial independence in Canada. Hi and welcome to Explore FI Canada. Thanks for listening. Today we have uh, an interview with Dr. Firefly. Chrissy's with me. Ryan's away driving around, delivering things to Tim Hortons, I assume. So uh, hi, Chrissy. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm doing quite well. It's uh, Oh, geez, I just used a choose FI there. I'm doing quite well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Firefly. How are you doing? Nice to have you on the show. Great. Happy to be here. <laughs> that is very reminiscent of uh, of Brad on Choose FI. <laughs> yeah, it was just a slip. I definitely don't say that regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so we're excited to have you on the show today. You're the first guest we've had that uh, is a physician in training. So this is exciting to to get a little bit of your perspective on on the profession and how it is relating to FI and the journey towards fire and You've got a blog online, which I've enjoyed reading through, uh, at Dr. Oh, where are you here? You're drfirefly.com, DR Firefly. So give us a little bit of a background for us and for the listeners just to start off so we, we know where we're going to go with the rest of the discussion here today. Sounds good. Uh, so like you mentioned, I blog at drfirefly.com and uh, just started in November, I think, of last year. So it's almost been a year. And, uh, you know, in the, in the fire space online, uh, sort of poking around and noticed that there, at least I hadn't found a uh, medical trainee perspective on FI or fire and this, uh, you know, this financial journey that, you know, I think quite a few of us or maybe more and more of us are starting to undertake and, um, and decided, you know, I am no expert, uh, but maybe blogging will help solidify some of the thoughts that are like that I've been having, and uh, maybe it'll be helpful to someone somewhere. So that's how it all began. Yeah, I think it's fantastic that you agreed to come on our show. Uh, as Money Mechanic said, you're our first uh, interviewee in in medicine. So it's really interesting because I know in the U.S., doctors are quite a big niche in the FI community, and they have some pretty interesting challenges that uh, most of us don't face, including higher student loans. And I'm wondering if you could address the Canadian side of that. Do you find that Canadian doctors are under the same kind of stress? I will say um, I don't have these specific numbers to compare between the two. My impression is that our student loan um, burden is less in Canada overall compared to the United States. This goes for undergrad and, you know, postgrad, uh, any, you know, professional degrees that may occur, like, you know, being a physician for one of them. Um, that being said, the average number for Canada, and I'm going to misquote it, but I think it does tend to run in the low six figures. And it probably doesn't need to. So I know when I graduated from medical school, it's it's funny, we have this uh, financial advisor service that our um, National Medical Association used to provide, uh, or yeah, I guess used to provide would be more accurate. 
uh, now. And so I'd sat down with one of their advisors uh, during my medical training to be like, you know, how do I tackle this debt? Where should I go? And they were they were kind of just like, oh, your yours is really low compared to the national average. You know, you've you've only got five digits worth. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure if I. I don't know. And I guess you know it, it depends on what province you're in and what kind of provincial and national support you can get, province by province. But yeah, the I guess the average number apparently was around a hundred to hundred and fifty thousand in Canada. And I'm not sure it needs to be that high necessarily. Like if you're in Vancouver or Toronto and your your home, like your home that you grew up in is not there, then I could see the costs running up. Um, but outside of kind of major, very expensive centers, I'm not sure that it really needs to be that high. So yeah. Wow, that's extremely encouraging because you hear, well, I think we've all heard of that. I think it was an orthodontist that ran up a million dollars in student loan debt. Is that right? Canadian? I don't know if you've heard of it. I can't, didn't hear about that one. Yeah, it was, it was, it was in the news for a while, but I, I believe it was a million dollars US that he ran oh. up at, at, at this very top end dental school. And it, it sounds like there are others. He wasn't, he's not the only one with that much student debt, student loan debt. So uh, it sounds like it's a steal in Canada. <laughs> yeah, definitely compared to, compared to the States, much more reasonable. So now doing, doing schooling and university and training for, you know, any kind of professional degree, uh, especially physicians, it's a, it's a long road. So it's a long return on that uh, investment of your, your time and money as, as the education. I noticed here on your blog, that you've got 109,000 was your total debt when you, when you left school. Now you're saying that that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's provincial student loan and line of credit. So that, that seems like a lot to me. Like, you know, I can't even fathom. I mean, I went to school quite a few years ago before you and I definitely don't have a professional degree, but I did have student loans. And I am so impressed with uh, how you managed to hammer out that line of credit in a year and 11 months. Tell us how focused you needed to be, because I can imagine coming out of school, you've got a lot of pressures and stress as with your with your career. And to be able to hammer that out is just so impressive. How did you go about doing that? I think starting in my first year of residency, Tackling the debt was one of my main priorities. It took a couple of months before I could start putting my paycheck towards the debt because I did move um, pretty much across the country for my residency program. So you have the setup costs um, for going to a new place, settling in, getting your furniture, all that stuff. But I think by September, um, probably by the end of August, uh, I started putting away my – like whatever I could from my paycheck towards my debt. And then I would squirrel away, you know, like $200 a month here and there just to try to start my TFSA. You know, long story short, I had um, read Millionaire Teacher by Andrew Hallam back in undergrad and have been waiting for like 10 years to finally make a paycheck. <laughs> and um, yeah, and and so when when the first paycheck started coming in in residency, I was like woo, and and started putting a tiny bit away into the TFSA, um, but mostly paying down the line of credit because uh, I it was really uncomfortable having that 
debt hanging over my head. You know, again, there are some parts of my circumstance that I think really helped, which is that I split my lodgings with my partner. So that, you know, cuts housing costs down a lot. We, like I always tend to cook at home and bring lunch to work instead of kind of buying out. And um, we kind of reserve eating out for kind of social gatherings with friends. And otherwise we'll, we'll cook our meals. And I think all those things really helped with being able to allocate more money towards paying down debt. And then by second year, I crunched a little bit of math and realized I probably should put more money into investments because over the long run, it will likely outstrip the line of credit interest rate. But psychologically, I I couldn't just put nothing towards my line of credit. And certainly I, I couldn't take money out of my line of credit to invest with, which um, I've heard of people doing. Um, it just, that doesn't sit with me psychologically, even though the numbers probably would work out. So I started splitting my paycheck, like the leftover money in half. So whatever didn't go towards expenses it would go towards half towards my debt and half towards investments. That's fantastic. I looking here, it must have been a long 10 years for you after reading those books and going, I can't wait to get started. But oh, man. <laughs> there you so are, in- incurring debt the whole time. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it was it was not great. You know, I in retrospect, there are things that I could have done to optimize even more. Um, but that's that's okay. We look forward and we, we make the most of what comes next. Exactly. So were you well on your way to paying off your debt when you discovered the fire community? Yeah, I was. So I'd already, I can't tell you like how much of the debt had been sort of paid off by that point, but I think I discovered the fire community maybe two years ago now, approximately. And, uh, And then I was like, oh, this is amazing. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it was it was mind boggling. So really, you know, I, I, I imagine I'm not the only one who, you know, discovers a fire community and then like really buckles down hardcore. And then I will say after a few months, I was like, okay, I need to pull back to something that's sustainable. You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I had already started making inroads into my Debt, and I think already started contributing to my TFSA, and then discovering the fire movement really helped consolidate what I want to work towards. It was it was pretty amorphous beforehand. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably anybody coming out of a long period of training like that to find the fire movement because we hear a lot about lifestyle creep and lifestyle inflation, especially with uh, sort of the hired in careers where all of a sudden you've worked really hard and you quote unquote deserve the nice things. How do you think that, do you think finding fire made the difference for you because of that? Because it sounds to me like a lot of things you're already preparing to be going along the right path towards financial freedom anyway. Do you think it's prevalent within the medical field for for lifestyle creep and inflation to be rampant once the money starts coming in? You can't see me nodding vigorously. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is absolutely prevalent. I you know, just thinking I have 
oh my gosh, more than one <laughs> close friend who uh, I can I can kind of see it starting, or they you know they can't wait to ramp up their lifestyle. And you know, to be fair, I don't know what their debt situation is like. Maybe they're completely debt free. Um, you know, we all have different backgrounds that we're coming from financially wise, but uh, oh yes, and doctors are notorious for being horrible, horrible with their money. And like physicians living paycheck to paycheck on very large paychecks, like uh, some of the time. So it's, uh, it can be mind boggling. Yeah. <laughs> which, which seems, it, it seems backwards because you've been very good at delayed gratification <laughs> by spending so long in school and yet you finish and it's like, I can't wait. Get the Porsche. Yeah. Get the Porsche. Oh my gosh. So I had a classmate get a Beamer in medical school. So it was secondhand, <laughs> but still, I remember being like, ah, ooh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, value, val- I guess hopefully it was value-based spending. Because, I mean, I, I do spend on travel, for instance. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it seems like sometimes the delayed gratification, it was like too long of a delay. And, and then, you know, if, if we see, our uh, role models, like in our career, um, maybe walking around with nice purses or, you know, driving around in fancy cars, um, getting the parking spot like closer to the hospital instead of further, which apparently costs more, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all those things. Um, I guess you're like, oh, that's what I'm working towards. So, okay, now I have a paycheck and I can actually start getting some of those things. So I guess it can be easy to feel like that's the norm if that's what you see and what you hear about. Mm -hmm. So now that you're in the fire community and you're on that train, how do you feel about lifestyle creep? Is it easy for you to resist the temptation? Oh man. No, I mean, the temptation is always there. I'm not a, I'm not a minimalist by nature, (laughs) but I think it's been it's been easier to recalibrate and remind myself you know do I like do I actually really like this thing this much that I want to spend money on it or you know do I really need to spring for an Uber fare or can I take another 20 minutes to walk like do I have a time crunch because if I do fine but if I don't like why not walk? You know, those kinds of things. And at the same time, I've tried to be conscious about not uh, scrimping or because I think everyone's definition of scrimping would be different. But for me, I, you know, there are things I don't want to feel guilty about when I'm spending money on it uh, or like if it aligns with my priorities, um, I will be mindful of what I'm spending, but not avoid, for example, going out with friends just so I can save money. Well, it sounds like you're a value-based spender, which most of us in the FI community are. So that goes a long way to help prevent any feelings of deprivation. Exactly. To help with the marathon towards the FI line or FIRE line, whichever one you're running towards. um, So it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. And another thing I find that helps a lot is when you have a strong why for FI. And I know that you 
you have quite a bit that you are um, that that is motivating you. And can you talk a bit about that? About um, how you, what kind of physician you want to be, and what kind of lifestyle you'd like? Right. So, so the why of I um, for for me at least. Um, so, like it would it wouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that um, like I I feel like our healthcare system is really good in a lot of ways, uh, but could also use a lot of improvement. And the more minds we have, I think, thinking about ways that we can improve healthcare experience or healthcare delivery, healthcare efficiency, all of those things, you know, the, I mean, frankly, the better we can, of a job we can do um, to provide as good of healthcare as, as we can. And so for, for my Wi-Fi, one of the things I would like to do is move more into systems improvement and, you know, learn, like, first off, I have to learn, you know, ways that we can influence the systems around us, um, you know, maybe nudge them in a, in a better or more efficient or what have you direction, identify gaps, all those things. And I have, I do have preceptors. Um, it's what I, you know, call our supervisors in medicine. So the, the full fledged physicians. Um, but I, you know, I do have preceptors who are very dedicated and, you know, do this kind of work. And, uh, I was just sort of thinking to myself, you know, I, I don't know if they're compensated for the work that they do in, in this area. Um, so it certainly would help to have like a really good financial base, um, such that, uh, if, if, you know, I think we're mostly paid for clinical work. So seeing patients and, uh, maybe like sometimes a bit for educational work. So teaching trainees, but, you know, I think I'm not sure about the systems work like that, that part of things. So having a good financial base, uh, to rest upon would really help free up my mental energy to to turn my attention towards those things if that was still something that I wanted to do you know at, at that time um, and the other thing too is sometimes you know you you might meet a healthcare provider or this could be anyone really and you kind of wonder do you do you really enjoy your job at all and this is where the lifestyle inflation thing might come in play is uh, I've definitely overheard conversations where, you know, some physicians are like, uh, you know, I I would feel ready to retire like five years ago, but I have to pay for X, Y, Z. And, you know, they're now in their 70s. And wow. and it's it's really tough to see, right? I th- and I, you know, I would hope certainly that for the most of their career that they, you know, loved what they did or at least – enjoyed what they did to some degree because it's a lot of time spent dedicated towards you know learning about their field of medicine and then practicing as a physician but you know if i think like with anything that you're forced into it's hard to enjoy it if you're feeling forced and then it's hard to do as good of a job as you can if you're feeling forced so you know i am thinking about times when i've been a patient and you know, it makes such a big difference when the nurse that I'm working with or the, or the nurse who's taking care of me or the physician who's taking care of me clearly, you know, wants to be there, is engaged, cares about me, cares about their work. Like that's the kind of healthcare provider that I want. And I would assume that's the kind of healthcare, provi- healthcare provider that 
you know, most people would want. So I, when we are financially independent or at least very financially secure, we're choosing to go to work every day. And so, you know, choosing to, to do that. And I think that makes a big difference in, in the kind of work that we can put out. Yeah. So it sounds like you're really focused on the FI part and not so much on the RE. Can, can you speak to that? Is, is that something that you're picturing way off in the future? Are you even considering anything earlier than the typical age of around 65 of retirement? I don't know. I, I flip flop about that. I will say when I discovered the fire movement, I think I was like full fire. RE included. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I could just, I don't know, retire at 45, maybe travel the world with my partner and, you know, maybe drag our parents along and, um, and drag our kids along, whether they wanted to or not, do like world schooling, all those things. Like I, you know, live a nomadic lifestyle. And that's still like a, that's still a possibility. Maybe, but there, there's a lot to be said for pouring our, our energies into something that's really meaningful. And uh, I do feel lucky in the sense that I find my work is, is very meaningful. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of, if I recall, like, you know, the bloggers or podcasters who've pursued fire, like RE, maybe were uh, not as um, like didn't find as much fulfillment from their kind of daytime jobs and are now pursuing like work that is meaningful um, or pursuits that are meaningful. It's it's hard to know. There, there are other things to life other than medicine, but there's it does feel like there's a lot left in medicine that I might want to do or explore. I just, I, th- I do think FI will give us the choice, you know, to pursue whatever lights us up at that time. Yeah, I, it seems like medicine brings about all kinds of feelings about FI, as uh, you have mentioned. Uh, I, I do have a doctor friend, and when I've mentioned it to her, she she uh, speaks about a lot of guilt about pouring so, many, so much of her life into this career mm-hmm. and then turning around and giving it up. It, and it, she also feels a sense of duty as a doctor. She feels like she, was, she had the privilege to get this education and to become a doctor. And she has the care of many patients in her hands. And she feels that it's her duty to keep doing that for as long as she's able. And mm. I, I don't know if you sense that in the general medical community, but that I can see that would be a big deterrent to to pursuing the RE of fire. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That that echoes a lot. Um, I certainly do like a lot of my close friends have similar feelings, whether or not they're pursuing like fire or fire or or lifestyle inflation. Um <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, medicine is, you know, if I think back to my class, it was like basically a room full of like really perfectionistic type A people, you know, very driven. I think pursuing the RE part, you know, like you mentioned, like with your friend, it will bring up those feelings of guilt uh, and as well as feelings of like, I guess, related to sunk cost fallacy you know, like I've already poured in so many years into this, like, how can I just stop now? You know, I've already taken the seat in medical school from someone else who might have poured their whole life into it. It's a tough, 
yeah, it would be a tough thing to consider. But I think the flip side is feeling trapped in medicine is just going to push this person towards, not your friend, but like push someone who feels trapped in medicine mm-hmm. towards burnout that much faster. And I mean, I, I don't want a, a physician who's burnt out caring for me. <laughs> you know, that's not a, that's not ideal. No, definitely not. So we always speak about, you know, a lot of common theme is that FI is, provides us with choice. And I was just thinking about that. I was, I was going to ask you along those lines of, of burnout because you are in a, a high stress job where there's a lot of demands on your your time and your knowledge. Burnout must be a thing. And I think it sounds to me like you're working hard for FI so that you can combat that burnout and be able to choose um, the path or the direction that you want to go or maybe adjust things uh, so that they're much more comfortable for you. Is that something that you would want to try and share with other physicians so that they don't uh, end up that way later on or you know like you said because of you know possibly lifestyle inflation or things like that that they feel too wrapped up in and, and increase that burnout how how do you feel the the community as a whole sort of handles yeah that? you're you're exactly right um so it's already i would say it's already common knowledge in medicine that burnout is an issue among full-fledged physicians even among medical trainees kind of of all trainee levels and it was like the main topic of our like anyways it's it's the main topic of quite a few conferences <laughs> like medical conferences so you know it's a very real issue i don't uh i would be surprised if if there were medical students now in the system who don't know about burnout hopefully not many are experiencing it themselves it's that be pretty early in the path but um yeah it it can like i know residents who've gone through or are going through burnout or struggling a lot um i don't know of staff physicians personally but probably because i'm a trainee and not a you know not a peer plus again Harkening back to a bunch of you know perfectionistic, um, very driven people, I think it's really hard to sometimes to even talk about feelings of burnout or stress with colleagues. I think the community, the medical community at least, is is well aware of burnout being an issue now, and and it's talk it's being talked about more. I don't, I actually don't come across FI or financial stability being talked about in conjunction with ways to combat burnout. And I think it's really important. So, you know, my hope is that um, finding my blog or the blog of other physician financial um, like bloggers or or podcasters um, that will provide another avenue to, to, to combat burnout or to kind of shore up our resilience towards burnout along with the other good things like the basics of eating healthy, taking a bit of time to exercise, taking some time to sleep when you're not on call, <laughs> taking like uh, taking post-call <laughs> days. There are definitely residency programs that don't take post-call days. What's what's a post-call day? Oh, sorry. So residents, uh, actually everyone, medical students, residents, and physicians, we we do call, right? So um, during daytime, you know, quote unquote, normal working hours. 
um, a hospital, for instance, has like it's fully fully manned. Uh, after about five five thirty, then you start to shift to the on call teams. So uh, you're kind of down to the skeleton crew that runs things overnight, and so that is usually composed. The team is usually composed of. Um, on the kind of quote unquote physician side would be the staff physician, um, resident or residents plural, and then medical student or medical students plural. And so for call, you have usually worked your full day, so your normal work day, and then you work overnight, and then you you end call the next morning. So so it's like a full, at least a full twenty four hours usually of you know, doing doing work overnight, uh, if not a bit longer, if your shift runs over. So some, wow. yeah, and it's, uh, depending on your specialty, you might be able to catch, you know, a couple naps here and there. I think, you know, my impression, certainly in the field I work in and um, when I talk to my friends who are in other fields, I think most of them, most of them find themselves awake for most of the night. Um, there, there aren't as many opportunities to kind of have a nap here or there. Um, so you're pretty tired by morning, or at least I'm, I'm actually fairly destroyed by morning. And, uh, and then, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. but then some programs, um, they actually don't take post-call days. So normally after you've worked your full daytime, then your full nighttime, then you're entitled to the day off afterwards to recuperate, right? Um, some programs, like some of the residents uh, choose not to take that day off and just keep working the next day. It's thankfully a lot less common now, but not unheard of. Are they doing it? Because, are they doing it for the money? Are they doing it just because they're already there? Like, would you make a different choice if you had, um, if you were FI? Um, no, it's it's not for the money. We don't get paid extra for overtime or anything like that. We, we get like a small call stipend. Right. Um, and I believe the numbers are all public. Like I think you can find them online. But, you know, where I work, I think the overnight call stipend from like 5 p.m. to technically till 9 a.m. the next day, I think is like 100 bucks, maybe 120 so why wouldn't they take the next day off? I'm, right. I'm so the, yeah. <laughs> if, if I work that much, I'm like, I'm, I'm gone. I'm out of here. <laughs> I think the ones where I hear that um, happening most often uh, seems to be in specialties uh, like that are more surgically minded. Um, and so there's some fear about losing opportunity because the more chances you get to be in on surgeries the more chances you have of developing your skills uh, you know i don't know maybe leftover kind of culture from quote unquote the olden days i'm not sure but that's the right. place where i yeah, yeah tend to right. you know hear about that more of not taking post call days yeah that's the like i get that in my industry too is well, this is the way we used to do it. And it's like, well, it's not that way exactly. anymore. <laughs> you know, it's unreasonable to expect, it's unreasonable and unsafe to expect people, you know, uh, sometimes we get into a situation where we're demanded to uh, repair 
the helicopter and the expectation used to be to you work until it's ready to go again. If that's all night and the next day, you just do it. You keep going. And thankfully, that's changed a bit now. There's a little bit more common sense and and everybody knows this. It's just unsafe uh, to be doing that. Yeah. So. I think the tricky part is I'm trying to remember. I, I don't think I've actually seen the raw data, but for surgical specialties, it does seem like the um, uh, what's the proper term? Like the the rate of you know out bad outcomes you know surgically doesn't seem to go up despite you know surgeons or surgery residents staying up overnight. Um, maybe because a lot of it is quite procedural, you know, and and less like I don't know, but like more more procedural. So they uh, you know there aren't more there are to my knowledge there are not more bad outcomes um, despite that, which is comforting. <laughs> Yeah. That is comforting. Yeah, yeah good to but know. But still, you know, overall for the the wellness of you know the surgeon and the wellness of the the resident and medical student. Hopefully, I don't. I hope they would send the medical student home. But you know, I, I think everyone needs their sleep. Like we we don't function well without it. So just because our mm-hmm. error rates don't go up, it doesn't mean we shouldn't take the time to rest and recover so that we can do our jobs and not be burnt out and, you know, still have emotional energy left for our family and friends, you know? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So you witness this burnout all around you and you've been to conferences where they talk about it and you know that FI could help with this. Do you try to share this message with anybody or do you, do you still keep it to yourself? I do talk about it. Um, usually with, fellow residents and with, you know, medical students, if we have downtime during the day, which may or may not come, but with, you know, kind of with res, like I have a lot of friends who are also residents. Uh, so like, you know, we will talk about it and, um, you know, talk about either the, you know, why of fire, or, you know, what this could do for resiliency or life in general. Um, and also talk about specifics of like, oh, here's what I'm doing. You know, what what have you been trying? Like, how are things going? Yeah. So I try to share it with kind of fellow trainees, either my level or a little bit more senior or more junior. But I will say I haven't talked about it as much with like staff physicians that I work with. And I think part of the hesitancy is I don't know how they feel about finances in general, you know, about resilience, how finances can tie into resilience. You know, I don't know if I'd be walking onto a landmine unknowingly if they've are if they already find themselves struggling. So I just don't go there with like with preceptors. Um mm-hmm. and what's the reception been like with the people you have spoken to? It's been it's been good. So yeah, with like, for example, with medical students that there might be a little bit of downtime um, in those in those moments when we've chatted a bit about finances and the importance of, um, you know, having good financial health uh, so that we can do everything else without worrying about at least that part of life. It's they seem to really appreciate um, me talking about finances. It is it is hard. Like if I think about preceptors who are willing to talk about finances with me, I'm very appreciative because money is un- is not something that in my experience like we as a society talk about a whole lot like within my family we never talked about it and then at large with with friends 
um, it was only until recently and mostly me <laughs> talking about money a bit more to try mm-hmm. to like learn from, learn from my friends, right. Or like, you know, share what I've learned if, if they're interested, um, cause it is so important, but there, there's been a lot of silence around it has been my experience. Um, but yeah, breaking the silence has generally been well-received and, um, with my, f- yeah, with my friends, if I, I, I kind of know them. So if they're, if I sense that they might be interested in talking about FI or investing or finances period, then I'll, you know, bring it up and usually we'll have like a good conversation. And some friends are not interested at all. You know, finances are scary and intimidating and they just rather not think about it for now, even though they know that they should. I'm thinking about one of my really good friends from like high school. You know, I'm sure they'll get around to it eventually. And when I get that sense, you know, they, they know that I'm into finances, like personal finance, and I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about it when they're ready, but I wouldn't push it on someone who's, you know, not in the right frame of mind to, to explore this, this new horizon. Mm -hmm. And do you share with them that you blog? Um, I, I share with some of my closest friends that I blog not broadly, like not with medical students, for instance, mm-hmm. not with fellow residents who I don't know very well, but with my friends, I do. Like I do share with them that I blog. That's great. I I have yet to share with friends. My whole family knows, but uh, I think only one or two friends know at this point because I, I felt like they were ready for the FI message. But most friends I know, I, I'm not comfortable enough to reveal it yet. Mm-hmm. So so good for you for for talking not only to your friends, but also to medical students and some of your fellow residents. It's so funny. Our, our situation is almost reversed. I, uh, I think I'm pretty sure I told my friends before I told my parents because I wasn't sure how they would feel <laughs> about this FI or FIRE movement. <laughs> um, but they know now too. Yeah. 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 Oh, cool. And, and what was their reaction? <laughs> well, I'm not sure my mom fully grasps it. Maybe. I, yeah. But yeah, I think my dad is starting to, you know, understand, you know, why someone would move towards FI or FIRE. Because um, he's, he's, well, obviously, you know, he's my father. He's getting a little bit older. He's still in pretty good health, but he has coworkers who've started developing health conditions and, you know, health scares. And, uh, you know, we have this conception that we can put off the good life until the golden years, but no one's guaranteed perfect health, even if we do all the right things. That'll help, but, um, you know, you just, you never know. So, so having the choice instead of just walking this set path of work till you're 65, then go golfing, traveling, cruising, whatever it is, having the choice and making like living life more consciously up until whenever, I think will allow us to live more of a life without regret, which is one of my big goals. So try to minimize regret. You know, when I reach my deathbed, be it at 35 or 95, I, uh, I don't want to be there saying like, well, well, dang it. That wasn't what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, you brought that up in one of your posts. You you spoke a little bit about how uh, how death impacts us and being physicians, you have more exposure to that than a lot of us. And you, you wrote in there, you know, 
your motto is live with no regrets. And that's a pretty powerful statement because a lot of people, you know, they never, well, maybe I shouldn't say this, but, you know, part of the fire attraction is you don't want to be the person uh, on the deathbed saying, I wish I'd worked another day, right? Nobody ever says that, do they? I haven't met one yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so it's true. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I absolutely, it is, it is so much about, about having choice and, you know, the longer I've been in this community and the more people I talk to and the more interesting stories I hear, the more the the underlying theme over and over again is living for the now and having the choice. And by having, being smart with your finances and not living beyond your means and not having lifestyle creep, it gives you that choice to go and do some traveling now, maybe take a year off, uh, have these like little mini breaks that refresh our mind and soul and reinvigorate our, our spirit and what we want to do and what we're really passionate mm-hmm. about. It's one thing that I don't know how to spread that message without, because a lot of times I find when you try and talk about FI with people that aren't uh, into personal finance, they're really interested when you talk about mm-hmm. investing right away. But when you turn around and say, well, tracking spending is the way you need to start, <laughs> they're just going to go, oh, well, that's no fun. I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been tracking your spending with a spreadsheet. Do you still use the spreadsheet to this day? Oh, yes. Yep. I, wow. I've been meaning to um, – um, but yeah, before I talk about the spreadsheet, like, again, you can't see me, but I'm just like – nodding like a bobblehead on a really bumpy road because everything that is exactly <laughs> like that's I think why you know why we're pursuing fi or pursuing fire depending who you are because yeah that that's exactly it and yeah so yeah um friends who are interested in talking about investing but yeah tracking spending their eyes sort of bug a little bit and they're like Totally. Yeah. Like they're like, oh, sure. Let's talk about the stock market. And you're like, okay, well, first, let's figure out how you're going to get some money. Let's track your spending. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you've got Mr. Sparks on board for tracking as well? No, I don't. But I will say, Mr. Sparks just, he doesn't actually buy a lot. He's, he's much better about spending than I am. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty phenomenal. Yeah. So we're, I, it's, we're, um, he, he was, it was interesting talking about fire or fire with him. He was he was definitely all set for lifestyle inflation. Like it was gonna be the big house and possibly a yacht. And I was like, what? Why? <laughs> like, A, are you sure we're gonna wind up on a coast? You know, and if we do, like, why do you want a yacht? <laughs> and I think he was joking, but you know, he kind of shrugged and he was like, Well, I guess, I guess we can have like parties on the yacht and I was like but you you don't really like people you're not a people person like most of the time like why do you want parties on your yacht <laughs> he's like hey. so you know it was just it was a little bit like I I was like I don't this doesn't compute but yeah <laughs> so we're still figuring out we'll, we'll figure out together like what kind of home square footage or or whatnot and um you know what kind of lifestyle we we want to have uh together um but in all honesty he's he's not much of a spender and although i track and you know am more into the finances i also spend more than he does so 
it works out. It it does. <laughs> and to, to answer your other question, yes, I still use the spreadsheet and I've been meaning to get around to it. Um, but one of my goals is to put up my numbers for however long I've been tracking. I think it's been 2011, just so like people can see all the all the stupid things I bought back in the day, or at least how much. I <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that the beauty of it? Is you actually can look at it and go, "Oh yeah, I did spend uh, two hundred dollars on that sweater." <laughs> well, that's okay. I really, really enjoy it, and it's valuable to me. But at least you can look back and say, "Yep." I made that decision back then and and here's how it's impacted me now. I spent those employees. Those employees are no longer working for me, but I'm okay with it. They were gone. They no longer work for me and I spent them on like junky <laughs> jewelry that I don't even know where it went. <laughs> like, you know, and it was of course it was like cheap jewelry, but still you buy enough of it and you're like, well, after compounding since 2011, like this is what that money could be now. <laughs> so it, I think I started it once and it hurt too much, so I stopped, but I should really bite the bullet and just wade through those numbers. <laughs> well, as far as, as bad money mistakes go, that's that's not bad. <laughs> and clearly, you, you've you done well with uh, paying off all that debt, and it sounds like you're well on your way to um, achieving what you want as far as FI. Thanks. Hope so. You know, again... It can never predict what curveballs life is going to throw, but you know we can do our best. Yeah, well, that's the important part about FI too is you have uh, a defensible position when you have emergency funds and investments and cash. That any of those curveballs, then you can deal with them and and handle them without uh, a lot of stress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting. I one of the things I've been thinking about recently is like. Should I get disability insurance? Should I not? Once you're FI, like you don't really need it because you're you're basically self-insured. Mm-hmm. But in that window, in that gap between now and FI, it's it's hard to, it's hard to know. <laughs> yeah, the whole insurance discussions is is a really interesting one, and and I can't speak to that very well. I've been somewhat delinquent myself about having proper coverage, and luckily I'm sort of moving towards five. So I've gotten through the worst of it, but yeah, that curveball could happen. And, and it's such a personal decision of what kind of insurances we need for life insurance, disability insurance, things like that. That's a huge topic that I think we'll have to tackle on the show one of these days. Yeah. It'd be definitely very useful. Although like really tough, really tough topic. Um, and I, I also just crunched some numbers recently. Like my, my latest post was about healthcare developments as as we you know uh, move through life and the costs that that can incur and how that can throw like our fire or fire number for a loop so I've been thinking about that as well uh, so so basically you know I ran through a hypothetical situation about if if you know both your parents wind up needing care and it's not tenable to like like it's not tenable for them to live at home without supports you know, what kind of costs are we looking at? And it's pretty sobering. And that's if, of course, if they don't have any savings at all, which I actually meant to look up what the average savings amount is for Canadians. I don't think it's that good though. Yeah, you see a lot of... I. I'm not a fan of statistics. I, and I hate these articles that you see that says, you know, 50% of Canadians are one paycheck away from bankruptcy and yet they only surveyed 2,000 people. It's like, well, is that 
enough to be representative or, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, good question. Because I think, I think we'd probably all admit um, a lot of people's parents in our, in our generation would probably not have as much as they would like to have saved. Yeah. Yeah. Those are costs that we're definitely going to have to factor in the possibility of it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was an eye opening article. I, I did read it and I had never considered those possibities, but you're right. In, in for some people, it is important to be able to care for their parents or even themselves. Like it could be you who needs long-term care, and it really could throw a wrench in your five plans if you haven't planned ahead for that. Yeah, even in Canada. Yeah, <laughs> even though you know we have medical c- paid for essentially, there there is so much other so many other expenses that go along with that if you're incapacitated um, and if you become a burden to the family, there there's a huge cost to that. Yeah. And I guess I didn't touch on it in this article, but I was thinking of maybe doing a little bit more research in the coming weeks or months. Um, but if you if you have a child who has a lot of care needs, like there's another person that people often would go to the ends of the earth for. Right. So um, Mm -hmm. that's another thing that can throw wrenches into people's fire dreams or fi dreams and how to how to deal with that. Um, Because even though we have such good healthcare coverage, it's so like compared to our neighbors south um, of the border, like, you know, there's so much stress off of our plates. There's still a lot of things that aren't covered, you know, medications, treatments. Uh, that kind of thing. Like it just as an example for, for example, if it's for a cancer and there's a, you know, you've tried the regimens that are covered and they didn't work and there's a new regimen, but it's not covered or it's only partially covered. I feel like, you know, as a parent, possibly as a child of a, of a parent, like of a parent, you know, you might say, well, let's go for it. Let's try it. Who cares how much it costs? And, uh, you know, that could definitely that could definitely eat away at at finances overall. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. I'll I'll I'm thinking about tapping that in a future <laughs> post. Although again, another another slightly depressing post <laughs> to write about. Well, it, it needs to be said. I, I think you're doing a service to yes. Canadians to bring up these hard topics, uh, and, and especially coming from the position you're at, where you have the inside knowledge and you have seen these situations for yourself, it's it's helpful for us who are not in the know to have it brought up. I think too, because a lot of people that join the uh, the movement for FI and, and FIRE just don't have, they can't relate to any future health problems yet because mm. they don't have any tactile experience unless somebody in the family has gone through it. So it's very interesting to hear that from your point of view and, and from the medical field in general, because you just, I guess you, you realize that these are distinct possibilities and we just need to have a good plan for it. And we need to know what's, what's the potential, what might happen. Yeah. Yeah. Just to at least know this is a potential situation or, you know, possible cost to factor in and depending on how cautious one wants to be or not. It's funny. I've never really considered myself as having an insider view, but I guess maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I think you do. Yeah, I think you do. I think we all have sort of insider views from our perspectives with our careers and industries and 
not necessarily in this particular topic, but in different things. I mean, I have an insider view of air travel and mm. we won't go into that, but, you know, we all kind of have a perspective because of uh, what we're involved in professionally day to day, right? So mm. it is interesting to hear it from, from the medical point of view, because a lot of us, I, you know, would rather, I, I don't want to generalize and say stick our head in the sand, but we definitely like to think that it wouldn't happen to mm. us. But the reality is we need to have a plan. Yeah. The reality is anything can strike anyone at any age, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, on a lighter note. (laughs) Before helping the vast majority, I also have a skewed sample. Obviously, if they were healthy, they wouldn't be seeing me. So um, bearing in mind, I have a skewed view. Yeah. (laughs) True enough. Okay, well, let's end this this interview on a happy note. Just before we get into the signature questions, I noticed on the get to know you form, you put arm's length mortgage lending <laughs> in there. And I'm just curious where you got that idea from. And <laughs> so believe it or not, I actually borrowed Greg Habstritt's book from the library like a couple of weeks before your podcast episode came out, like the... Um, the FI Garage episode. And I was like, oh, how timely when when it came out. So I was very excited. Yeah, no, I just found his book on the shelf in the local library in the section that I was perusing. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, the first half of the book is a rehash of what I think we are of concepts we're quite familiar with. And the second half was very eye-opening. But I don't know about you, I haven't actually made any moves on that yet. Um I don't have an RSP set up. I guess I guess I could lend from the TFSA, but I have a a very expensive exam that I'm studying for this year. So I haven't been dedicating as much brain space to the uh, arm's length mortgages. But I'm very interested in that, especially once I get an RSP rolling. Yeah, well, it's just it's just interesting. I was just interested when I saw you you wrote it in here because it's not on a lot of people's radars, and it's really interesting that you just happened to pick up the book and read it because it is a fairly enlightening book. And I'll look forward to a post on your blog uh, in the future about maybe when you have uh, some some time and some cash built up in RSP to explore it. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of. I've gone back and forth, but I've actually, before we started talking, I've got the papers in front of me for Canadian Western Trust, mm-hmm. and I've been in contact with a broker and a lawyer, so things are starting to move forward. So I'll, I'll keep everybody up to date on my experience as well. Amazing. So, Christy, should we do our signature questions? <laughs> sure. Uh, let's let's go into our signature questions. And I don't know if you are prepared for these, but let's give it a shot. Okay. <laughs> so I usually start. <laughs> My question is, and I think we know the answer already. Are you team fire or team fire? Um, yeah. So I started team fire all the way. And right now I am team fire. <laughs> Just like me. That's perfect. <laughs> I think, isn't Ryan supposed to boo you on that? Yeah, he is. He so <laughs> but he's not here. He's and, not here. Uh, <laughs> what is your favorite order from Tim Hortons? Oh, wait, that's not my question either. <laughs> <laughs> my question, I, I usually, I, I never seem, I never feel like I ask this question very well, but I'm always curious if you have a, a DIY hack around the house or vehicle or whatever that you find that you do yourself that saves you some money that you would share. I'm not very hands-on. I try. It goes okay sometimes. I think my most like DIY <laughs> thing is is honestly not buying lunch out. Like the time savings is 
phenomenal, like on a day-to-day basis, like having to trek down to the cafeteria, wait in line with everyone else, and then eat your food or try to bring it back up so you can do a bit of like work through the lunch um, if you have a lunch. And then, you know, all, all that jazz, like avoiding that. And then you get to eat healthier. And cooking doesn't take, it doesn't have to take that long unless you really enjoy the process, which I do not. <laughs> well, well, that's fair. Meal prepping and making your lunches. That's, uh, that's DIY. I like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So should we still ask Ryan's question, the Tim Hortons one? All right. What do you order at Tim Hortons? <laughs> when, when you're forced to. When I'm forced to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I am trying to remember the last time I was there. But if I'm, if I'm in need of a treat, I will usually order an ice cap um, chocolate milk. Mm. Oh, ice cap chocolate milk. Like they, they put chocolate milk yes. in the ice cap? Isn't the ice cap basically already got chocolate um, in it? Oh, you double up Yeah, they, the they make it with chocolate milk instead. It's very good. It's um, it's like a once every six months treat. Well, yeah, the accountant and I were visiting in Ontario, and we went to more Tim Hortons than I ever have in the small period of time. But I never thought to try the chocolate milk. This is on my radar now. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You might you might regret it after you try it. You may be like, oh, that was this was a bad idea because it's so good. Dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, well, I developed a slight addiction to the regular ice cap, so now I'm in real trouble because I have admittedly have a chocolate problem. I've admitted that publicly on our blog before. So. <laughs> oh, no. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and uh, I think we probably will have future questions for you, and we're definitely going to follow along on your blog. Do you want to just give a quick plug of where people can find you? Yeah, sounds good. Um, so my blog is at um, drfirefly.com, so D-R-F-I-R-E-F-L-Y.com. And uh, I post kind of irregularly, but I try to do it at least once a month. Yeah. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. This was really fun. Oh, we had a great time too. Thank you for coming on. I, kn- I know you're a little hesitant at first, so I'm, I'm really happy that you agreed to come on in the end. Yeah. I, I'm also very glad. This, was, this has been great. Thanks for listening. You can find all our show notes at explorifycanada.ca. Do you like what you're hearing? Help us grow by sharing the show with friends and family. Please subscribe and leave us a comment or review on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us at our own blogs, figarage.ca, canadianfire.ca, or eatsleepbreathefy.com. Our music today was provided by Purple Planet. We'll be back with another episode soon. We'll talk then.